The Westminster Confession of Faith was first published in 1646. It was the result of the hard work done by a group of men called the Westminster Divines. Their goal was to outline what they believed the Scriptures principally taught. And it has been said that the Church of Christ cannot be creedless and live. Thankfully, the Westminster Confession of Faith has been the creed of the Reformed Church for almost 400 years. This podcast seeks to point you to Christ, to help you navigate the Westminster Confession of Faith, and to see you understand what you believe and why you believe it. Welcome to This We Confess. Westminster Confession of Faith, Chapter 27 of the Sacraments, Paragraphs 1 and 2. Sacraments are holy signs and seals of the covenant of grace, immediately instituted by God to represent Christ and his benefits and to confirm our interest in him, as also to put a visible difference between those that belong onto the church and the rest of the world and solemnly to engage them to the service of God in Christ according to his word. Paragraph 2. There is in every sacrament a spiritual relation or sacramental union between the sign and the thing signified, whence it comes to pass that the names and the effects of the one are attributed to the other. Hello and welcome to episode 78 of This We Confess. And today we begin our look at chapter 27, which details what we confess about the sacraments. But before we jump into today's teaching, we pause briefly to unpack the word sacrament. Sacrament is the English translation of the Latin word sacramentum, which means sacred or holy. So to speak of baptism and the Lord's Supper as sacraments is to describe them as the holy things of the church. Therefore, we do not take them lightly, and they should not be used flippantly by those within the local fellowship. As the Westminster Divines begin, they state firstly that these sacraments are holy signs and seals of the covenant of grace. And what a full theological statement that is. So let's split it up into its constituent parts, beginning firstly with the covenant of grace. As Reformed Christians, we understand the Bible covenantally, and we believe that we see three main covenants in Scripture. Firstly, there is the covenant of redemption, and it is made in eternity past between the three persons of the Godhead, and Jesus speaks of the covenant of redemption in this way. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. John chapter 6, verses 37 to 40. And so we see here that the Father gives a people to the Son. The Son dies for these people, and the Holy Spirit draws these people to the Son. This is called 
the covenant of redemption. Additionally, we speak of the covenant of works, which was willingly made between the Lord and the first man, Adam. On the condition of Adam's personal and perfect obedience, he was promised everlasting life for him and those who came after him. Now, there are some within the church who argue that there is no such thing as the covenant of works in the Bible. However, as Reformed Christians, we look to the book of Genesis for the beginning of the covenant of works. Here is what we read in Genesis 2, verse 15 onwards. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. The Lord commands. The Lord sets the terms. The Lord outlines the punishment. Here is a covenant relationship, and we call it the covenant of works. And finally, we speak about the covenant of grace, which also finds its genesis in Genesis. After Adam falls into sin and the covenant of works is ripped up, the Lord once again willingly enters into another covenant, and this time the covenant of grace. Here is what we read in Genesis 3, verse 14 and 15. The Lord said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. The covenant of grace will be administered differently throughout the Old Testament and New Testament periods. But there are not multiple covenants of grace, and there are not two paths of salvation. Salvation under the covenant of grace has always been by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And the offspring of the woman was always the focus, and her offspring, the seed, was Christ. So years after the fall, the covenant of grace was spoken of this way by the Lord to Abram. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. As we see, the covenant of grace is an everlasting covenant. And under the administration of it within the Old Testament church, it was to have the sign and seal of circumcision and the Passover supper. And here's what Paul says about the sign and seal of circumcision in Romans 4 and verse 11. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised, so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. So just as a sign points us to a greater reality, and just as a seal is a stamp of authority and ownership, so the covenant of grace has always had sacraments acting as signs and seals of the covenant of grace. These signs point us away from ourselves unto Almighty God, and they seal before us the reality of the truthfulness of God's promises. 
They show visibly that we belong to God and that he still promises to be our God and we his people. The sacraments in the Old Testament church were circumcision and the Passover supper. And today in the New Testament church, the sacraments are baptism and the Lord's Supper. These sacraments were not invented by the church, but it is, as the Westminster divines say, that God himself instituted them. In Matthew 28 and verse 19, we read, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And then later in 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 23, the apostle would state, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. It is the Lord who has given his church the sacraments. In Old Testament days he gave us circumcision and the Passover supper. And in these days, in light of what Christ has done, we now come to the waters of baptism instead of circumcision. And we now come to the Lord's Supper, to communion, instead of the Passover meal. And just as the Lord instituted these sacraments, he did so for a multitude of reasons. Firstly, the sacraments represent Christ and his benefits. We do not make any images of Christ, for they are unbiblical and they rob the Saviour of his glory. However, we have the sacraments as Christ's words made visible. They represent him. And as we eat and drink at the supper, it is correct to say that we participate with Christ. Here's what Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 16. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? And later in 1 Corinthians 11, here's what Paul writes. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So as we attend to the sacraments, we are reminded of the benefits of Jesus, his body and blood given for us, the cleansing flow of his blood like the cleansing waters of baptism, the forgiveness we have in Christ. The sacraments represent all of these things. They represent to us in a visible way Christ and all his benefits. And, say the divines, the sacraments confirm our interest in Jesus. Sacraments are for the church alone. They are for Christians only. And as we eat at the table, or as we come to the waters of baptism, We are confirming our interest or relationship with Jesus. Paul would say this in Galatians 3 and verse 27. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. The sacraments therefore show that we belong to Jesus, that we have put on Christ. So according then to the Westminster Divines, the sacraments represent Christ and his benefits. And additionally, They confirm our interest in Jesus. However, there is also another use, and that is to put a visible difference between those that belong unto the church and the rest of the world. We read in Exodus 12 and verse 48, If a stranger shall sojourn with you and would keep the Passover to the Lord, let all his meals be circumcised. Then he may come near and keep it. He shall be as a native of the land, 
but no uncircumcised person shall eat of it. And so we see in the book of Exodus that as the church was worshipping, as the church was coming to the Passover meal, it wasn't just for anyone. If there was a stranger among the people of Israel, then those individuals had to be circumcised before they could come and take the Passover meal. The sacraments are not for everybody, but instead they are for the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And only those who know the Lord Jesus by faith can come and enjoy the sacraments. Sometimes I've heard it said that unbelievers can often feel uncomfortable when we stress that the table is not for them or indeed we turn them down for baptism. If this has been the case, then good. Those unbelievers who are uncomfortable at the sacraments being exclusively for the church, they need to repent and to believe the gospel, instead of engaging faithlessly with the sacraments. In the same manner, we should resist any temptation to offer things like thanksgiving services for children. These are waterless baptisms, and they confuse the teaching that sacraments highlight the difference between the world and the church. So once again, the divines tell us that the sacraments represent Christ and his benefits, they confirm our interest in him, and they put a visible difference between those that belong to the church and to the rest of the world. As paragraph one then comes to a close, there is one more purpose of the sacraments. The divines say that the sacraments are to solemnly engage Christians to the service of God and Christ according to his word. So in other words, the sacraments remind us and require us of our service to Christ the King. Paul would say in Romans 6 and verses 3 to 4, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So the sacraments encourage us and assure us and equip us to walk in newness of life, to live for Christ and to serve him in all that we do. And as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 16, the cup of blessing that we bless Is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Verse 21, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. And so as the church comes to the sacraments, as we enjoy them, as they are used to bless us and to grow us up in the faith, they are also sure signs that we must walk according to the ways of the Lord. We must follow him and not the evil that we used to walk in. We are no longer with the devil, but we are with Christ, and we must walk in newness of life. The tragedy of many in my own land is that they come to the Lord's table once in a blue moon and then continue to live the rest of the time as if Christ only exists within the walls of the church. This is nonsense. If we eat and drink, and have been baptised, then we have claimed to be with Christ. Therefore, may we take seriously our sacramental call to serve us. So to revise, the sacraments are holy signs and seals of the covenant of grace. There were two in the Old Testament, circumcision and the Passover meal, and there are two in the New Testament, baptism and the Lord's Supper. And these signs were given to us by God with a fourfold purpose. 
The sacraments represent Christ and his benefits. They confirm our interest in him. They show the difference between the world and the church. And they remind us and solemnly engage us to the service of God in Christ according to his word. As today's teaching comes to a close, we look at paragraph 2. And in that paragraph, the Westminster Divines write, There is in every sacrament a spiritual relation or sacramental union between the sign and the thing signified, whence it comes to pass that the names and the effects of the one are attributed to the other. Now you might have just listened to me reading that and immediately wondered, what on earth does that mean? Well, let me try to explain it in a straightforward manner. Firstly, the Westminster Divines teach that there is a sacramental union between the sacraments and what they signify. So let's take baptism for an example. It isn't an empty ritual that we go through just so we can have nice photos and slap up lunches. Baptism is united to what it signifies. And I think we see that in 1 Peter 3 and verse 21. There the apostle writes, Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Peter has just taught here about the baptism of Noah on the ark. Noah and his family were brought through the waters. And so in the same way, says Peter, baptism now saves you. Now those of you listening really well might at this stage protest that we do not believe that baptism or the Lord's Supper actually save us. My friends, if you have taken this stance, then you are absolutely correct. We are not saved either by baptism or the Lord's Supper. Neither has anything to do with our salvation. However, the sacraments communicate something about our salvation. Baptism communicates something about our salvation. The Lord's Supper communicates something about our salvation. The sacraments do not cause our salvation, but once again, the sacraments communicate something about our salvation. This is what we mean when we speak of a sacramental union between the sacrament and the thing signified, and whence it comes to pass that the names and the effects of the one are attributed to the other. And so sometimes the scriptures describe the sacraments interchangeably with what they signify. So for example, in Genesis 17 and verse 10, the sign of circumcision was spoken of in this way. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. The sign of circumcision is referred to here as my covenant. The names and the effects of the one are attributed to the other. Later in the New Testament, Jesus calls a cup of wine the blood of the covenant. The names and the effects of the one are attributed to the other. Jesus took a cup in Matthew 26, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And then in Titus 3 and verse 5, we read that he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. So here, Paul speaking of baptism, the washing of regeneration, once again, 
the names and the effects of the one are attributed to the other. Our sins are not washed away by baptism, but baptism communicates something about our salvation. So the sacraments are so good at their job that they have a sacramental union with what they signify. Sometimes scripture describes the sacraments interchangeably with what they signify, and they do not cause our salvation, but they wonderfully communicate the benefits of our salvation. I fully understand that this might seem difficult to grasp, and perhaps it might even seem unimportant and overly technical. Let me just say this to close. The sacraments are not empty rituals. When we come to the Lord's Supper or to the waters of baptism, we are not just going through the motions. We are not engaging in some traditional exercise of the church that has no spiritual significance. As we come to the sacraments, we remember that they have a sacramental union with what they signify. And they signify the gospel, Christ Jesus, forgiveness of sins, his blood shed abroad as a ransom for many, the newness of life and an everlasting hope. The sacraments signify all of these things. Therefore, the sacraments have spiritual significance and reality because God has made them exactly that way. Today, though, we finish with the words of Scott Clark, who puts all of this together in a very helpful way. He says, The supper is not Christ, but it is a gospel sacrament of Christ. There is a sacramental union between the sign and the thing signified, Christ and salvation. For those who believe, it is as if they were one and the same. And to those who believe, to receive the one is to receive the other. The relation between the sign and the thing signified is as close as possible. But the sign is not the thing, or else, as I keep saying, it would not longer be a sign. So the question is, of what value are signs? The answer is, much in every way. Of what value is the word of God? It is, after all, a sign that the Spirit uses. And this gets us back to metaphors. Our Lord compared himself to a hen to help us understand his attitude towards sinners. And God sees fit to stoop to us and to use signs like bread and wine to help us on our journey. We should receive those signs and all that they communicate with thanks and with joy. Because what they communicate and the communion that they seal to believers is glorious indeed. As always, here are some questions for you to consider. Question 1. Explain the three covenants that we find in Scripture. Question 2. What do we mean when we speak of sacraments as signs and seals? Question 3. According to paragraph 1, what are the four things sacraments do? And question 4. What do you understand by sacramental union and why does it help us to take the sacraments seriously? That's all for today. As always, my name is Scott Woodburn and until next time, 
This we confess. 